Chapters three and four of the Avenger by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter three. Discussing the crime. The murder of Morris Baines, considered merely as an event, came as a godsend to the halfpenny press, which has an unwritten but immutable contract with the public to provide it with so much sensation during the week in season or out of season. Nothing else was talked about anywhere. Under the influence of the general example, Wrayson found himself within a few days discussing its details with perfect coolness and with an interest which never flagged. He seemed continually to forget his own personal and actual connection with the affair. It was discussed, amongst other places, at the Sheridan Club, of which Wrayson was a member, and where he spent most of his spare time. At one particular luncheon party the day after the inquest nothing else was spoken of. For the first time, in Rayson's hearing, a new and somewhat ominous light was thrown upon the affair. There were four men at the luncheon party, which was really not a luncheon party at all, but a promiscuous coming together of four of the men who usually sat at what was called the Colonel's table. First of all there was the Colonel himself. Colonel Edgar Fitzmaurice, C.B., D.S.O., easily the most popular member of the club, a distinguished retired officer, white-haired, kindly and genial, a man of whom no one had ever heard another say an unkind word, whose hand was always in his none-too-well-filled pockets, and whose sympathies were always ready to be enlisted in any forlorn cause, deserving or otherwise. At his right hand sat Rayson. On his left, Sidney Mason, a rising young sculptor, and also a popular member of this somewhat bohemian circle. Opposite was Stephen Hanage, a man of a different and more secretive type. He called himself a barrister, but he never practiced. A journalist at times, but he seldom put his name to anything he wrote. His interest, if he had any, he kept to himself. In a club where a man's standing was reckoned by what he was and what he produced, he owed such consideration as he received to a certain air of reserved strength, the more noteworthy amongst the little coterie of men, who amongst themselves were accustomed to speak their minds freely and at all times. If he was never brilliant he had never been heard to say a foolish thing or make a pointless remark. He moved on his way through life and held his place there more by reason of certain negative qualities which, amongst a community of optimists, were universally ascribed to him than through any more personal or likable gifts. He had a dark, strong face, but a slim, weakly body. He was never unduly silent, but he was a better listener than talker. If he had no close friends, he certainly had no enemies. Whether he was rich or poor, no man knew, but next to the colonel himself, no one was more ready to subscribe to any of those charities which the Sheridanites were continually inaugurating on behalf of their less fortunate members. The man who succeeds in keeping the ego out of sight as a rule neither irritates nor greatly attracts. Stephen Hanage was one of those who stood in this position. They were talking about the murder, or rather the colonel was talking, and they were listening. "'There is one point,' he remarked, filling his glass and beaming good-humouredly upon his companions, which seems to have been entirely overlooked. I am referring to the sex of the supposed assassin.' Rayson looked up inquiringly. It was a point which interested him. 
nearly all of you have assumed the colonel continued that it must have taken a strong man to draw the cord tight enough to have killed that poor fellow without any noticeable struggle as a matter of fact a child with that particular knot could have done it it requires no strength only delicacy of touch rapidity and nerve a woman then wrayson began bless you yes a woman could have done it easily the colonel declared only unfortunately there don't seem to have been any women about why i've seen it done in korea with the turn of the wrist it's all knack wrayson shuddered slightly the colonel's words had troubled him more than he would have cared to let anyone know woman or man or child mason remarked the person who did it seems to have vanished in some remarkable manner from the face of the earth he certainly seems the colonel admitted to have covered up his traces with admirable skill i have read every word of the evidence at the inquest and i can understand that the police are completely confused heneage and mason exchanged glances of quiet amusement whilst the colonel helped himself to cheese dear old boy the latter murmured he's off on his hobby let him go on he enjoys it more than anything in the world heneage nodded assent and the colonel returned to the subject with avidity a few moments later this man morris barnes he affirmed seems to have been a somewhat despicable at any rate a by no means desirable individual he was of jewish origin and he had not long returned from south africa where heaven knows what his occupation was the money of which he was undoubtedly possessed he seems to have spent or at any rate some part of it in aping the life of a dissipated man about town he was known to the fair promenaders of the empire and alhambra he was an habitue of the places where these er ladies partake of supper after the exertions of the evening of home life or respectable friends he seems to have had none this mason declared leaning back and lighting a cigarette is better than the newspapers go on colonel your biography may not be sympathetic but it is lifelike the colonel's eyes were full of a distinct and vivid light he scarcely heard the interruption he was on fire with his subject you see he continued that the man's days were spent amongst a class where the passions run loose where restraint is an unknown virtue where self and sensuality are the upraised gods one can easily imagine that from amongst such a slough might spring at any time the weed of tragedy in other words this man morris barnes moved amongst a class of people to whom murder if it could be safely accomplished would be little more than an incident the colonel lit a cigar and leaned back in his chair he was enjoying himself immensely the curious part of the affair is though he continued deliberately that this murder as i suppose we must call it bears none of the hallmarks of rude passion on the contrary it suggests in more ways than one the touch of the finished artist the man's whole evening has been traced without the slightest difficulty he dined at the cafe royal alone promenaded afterwards at the alhambra and drove on about supper-time to the continental he left there at twelve-thirty with a couple of ladies whom he appeared to know fairly well called at their flat for a drink and sent one out to his cabby rather unusual forethought for such a bounder when he reappeared and directed the man to drive him to cavendish mansions battersea the driver tried to excuse himself both he and his horse were dead tired he said barnes however insisted upon keeping him and off they went at cavendish mansions barnes alighted and offered the man a sovereign 
Naturally enough the fellow could not change it, and Barnes went in to get some silver from his rooms, promising to return in a minute or two. The cabby descended and walked to the corner of the street to see if he could beg a match for his pipe from any passer-by. He may have been away for perhaps five minutes, certainly no more, during which time he stood with his back to the mansions. Seeing no one about, he returned to his cab, ascended to his seat, naturally without looking inside, and fell fast asleep. The next thing he remembers is being awakened by Rayson here. So much for the cabby. What a fine criminal judge was lost to the country, Colonel, when you chose the army for a career, Mason remarked, turning round to order some coffee. Such coherence, such an eye for detail. Pass the matches, Rayson. Thanks, old chap. The Colonel smiled placidly. I am afraid, he said, that I should never have had the heart to sentence anybody to anything. But I must admit that things of this sort do interest me. I love to weigh them up and theorize. The more melodramatic they are, the better. Hanage helped himself to a cigarette from Mason's case, and leaned back in his chair. I never have the patience, he remarked, to read about these things in the newspapers, but the Colonel's resume is always thrilling. Do go on. There won't be any pool till four o'clock. The Colonel smiled good-naturedly. It's good of you fellows to listen to my prosing, he remarked. No use denying that it is a sort of hobby of mine. You all know it. Well, we'll say we've finished with the cabby then. Enter upon the scene of all the people in the world, our friend Rayson. Here, here, murmured Mason. Rayson changed his position slightly. With his head resting upon his hand, he seemed to be engaged in tracing patterns upon the tablecloth. Rayson knows nothing of Barnes beyond the fact that they are neighbors in the same flats. Being the assistant editor of a journal of worldwide fame, however, he has naturally a telephone in his flat. By means of that instrument he receives a message in the middle of the night from an unknown person in an unknown place which he is begged to convey to Barnes. The message is in itself mysterious. Taken in conjunction with what happened to Barnes, it is deeply interesting. Barnes, it seems, is to go immediately on his arrival, at whatever hour, to the Hotel Francis. Presumably he would know from whom the message came, and the sender does not seem to have doubted that if it was conveyed to Barnes he would obey the summons. Rayson agrees, too, and does deliver it. That is to say, he writes it down and leaves it in the letter-box of Barnes' door, Barnes not having yet returned. Now we begin to get mysterious. That communication from our friend here has not been discovered. It was not in the letter-box. It was not upon the person of the dead man. We cannot tell whether or not he ever received it. I believe I am right so far. Absolutely, Rayson admitted. Our friend Rayson, then, the Colonel continued, beaming upon his neighbor, instead of going to bed like a sensible man, takes up a book and falls asleep in his easy-chair. He wakes up about three or four o'clock, and his attention is then attracted by the jingling of a handsome bell below. He looks out of window and sees a cab, both the driver and the occupant of which appear to be asleep. The circumstance striking him as somewhat unusual, he descends to the street and finds, well, rather more than expected. He finds the cabman asleep, and is fair scientifically and effectually throttled by a piece of silken cord. Rayson turned to the waiter and ordered a liqueur brandy. "'Have one, fellows?' he asked. "'Good. Four, waiter.' He tossed his own off directly it arrived. His lips were pale, 
and the hand which raised the glass to his lips shook. Hanage alone, who was watching him through a little cloud of tobacco smoke, noticed this. "'Have you finished with me, Colonel?' Rayson asked. "'Practically,' the Colonel answered, smiling, "'unless you can answer one of the three queries suggested by my resume. First, who killed Morris Barnes? Secondly, when was it done? Thirdly, where was it done? I have left out a possible fourth. Why was it done? Because in this case I think that the motive and the man are practically identical. I mean that if you discover one, you discover the other. Hanage leaned across the table towards the colonel. You are a magician, colonel, he declared quietly. I glanced through this case in the paper, and it did not even interest me. Since I have listened to you I have fallen under the spell of the mysterious. Have you any theories? The colonel's face fell a little. Well, I am afraid not, he admitted regretfully. To be perfectly interesting the affair certainly ought to present something more definite in the shape of a clue. You see, providing we accept the evidence of Rayson and the cabman, and, I suppose, he added, laying his hand affectionately upon Rayson's shoulder, we must. The actual murderer is a person absolutely unseen or unheard of by anyone. If you are all really interested, we will discuss it again in a week's time, after the adjourned inquest. I, for one, shall look forward to it, Hanage remarked, glancing across towards Rayson. What about a pool? I'm on, Rayson declared, rising a little abruptly. And I, Mason assented. And I can't, the colonel said regretfully. I must go down to Balham and see poor Carlo Malini. I hear he's very queer. The colonel loved pool, and he hated a sick room. The click of the billiard balls reached him as he descended the stairs, but he only sighed and set out manfully for Charing Cross. On the way he entered a fruitier's shop and inquired the price of grapes. They were more than he expected, and he counted out the contents of his trousers' pockets before purchasing. A little short of change, he remarked cheerfully. Yes, all right, I'll take them. He marched out, swinging a paper bag between his fingers, traveled third class to Balham, and sat for a couple of hours with the invalid whom he had come to see, a lonely Italian musician to whom his coming meant more than all the medicine his doctor could prescribe. He talked to him glowingly of the success of his recent concert. More than a score of the tickets sold had been paid for secretly by the colonel himself and his friends, prophesied great things for the future, and laughed away all the poor fellow's fears as to his condition. There were tears in his eyes as he walked to the station, for he had visited too many sick beds to have much faith in his own cheerful words, and all the way back to London he was engaged in thinking out the best means of getting the musician sent back to his own country. Arrived at Charing Cross, he looked longingly towards the club and ruefully at the contents of his pocket. Then with a sigh he turned into a little restaurant and dined for eighteen pence. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 Under a Cloud Exactly one week later six men were smoking their after-dinner cigars at the same round table in the dining-room at the Sheridan Club. As a rule, it was the hour when, with all the reserve of the day thrown aside, badinage and jest reigned supreme, and the humorist came to his own. Tonight chairs were drawn a little closer together, voices were subdued, and the conversation was of a more serious order. Not even the pleasant warmth of the room, the fragrance of tobacco, 
and the comfortable sense of having dined could altogether dispel a feeling of uneasiness which all more or less shared. It chanced that all six were friends of Herbert Rayson's. The colonel, as usual, was in the chair, but even on his kindly features the cloud hovered. Of course, he said, none of us who know Rayson well would believe for a moment that he could be connected in any way with this beastly affair. The unfortunate part of it is that others who do not know him might easily be led to think otherwise. It is altogether his own fault, too, Mason remarked. He gave his evidence shockingly, and his movements that night, or rather that morning, were certainly a little peculiar, another man remarked. His connection with the affair seemed to consist of a series of coincidences. The law does not look favorably upon coincidences. But after all, the colonel remarked, he scarcely knew the fellow, just nodded to him on the stairs and that sort of thing. Why, there isn't a shadow of a motive. We can't be sure of that, Colonel, Hanage remarked quietly. I wonder how much we really know of the inner lives of even our closest friends. I fancy that we should be surprised if we realized our ignorance. The Colonel stroked his gray moustache thoughtfully. That may be true, he said, of a good many of us. Rayson, however, never struck me as being a particularly secretive sort of chap. Unfortunately, that counts for very little, Hanage declared. The things which surprise us most in life come often from the most unlikely people. We none of us mean to be deceitful, but a perfectly honest life is a luxury which few of us dare indulge in. The colonel regarded him gravely. I hope, he said, that you don't mean that you consider Rayson capable? I wasn't thinking of Rayson at all, Hanage interrupted. I was generalizing. But I must say this. I think that given sufficient provocation or motive, there isn't one of us who couldn't be capable of committing murder. A man's outer life is lived according to the laws of circumstances and society. His inner one no one knows anything about except himself and God. Hanage, Mason sighed, is always cynical after Kumel. Hanage shrugged his shoulders and lit a cigarette. No, he said, I am not cynical. I simply have a weakness for the truth. You will find it rather a hard material to collect if you set out in earnest. But to return to Rayson, let me ask you a question. We are all friends of his, more or less intimate friends. You would all of you scout the idea of his having any share in the murder of Mars Barnes. What did you make of his evidence at the inquest this afternoon? What do you think of his whole deportment and condition? I can answer that in one word, the colonel declared. I think that it is unfortunate. The poor fellow has been terribly upset, and his nerves have not been able to stand the strain. That is all there is about it. Rayson has been working up to the limit for years, Mason remarked, and he's not a particularly strong chap. I should say that he was about due for a nervous breakdown. A waiter approached the table and addressed the colonel. He was wanted on the telephone. During his absence Hanage leaned back in his chair and relapsed into his usual imperturbability. He was known amongst his friends generally as the silent man. It was very seldom that he contributed so much to their discussions as upon this occasion. Perhaps for that reason his words, when he spoke, always carried weight. Mason changed his place and sat beside him. The others had wandered off into a discussion upon a new magazine. "'Between ourselves, Hanage,' Mason said quietly, "'have you anything at the back of your head about Rayson?' 
Heneage did not immediately reply. He was gazing at the little cloud of blue tobacco smoke which he had just expelled from his lips. "'There is no reason,' he declared, "'why my opinion should be worth any more than anyone else's. I think as highly of Rayson as any of you.' "'Granted,' Mason answered. "'But you have a theory or an idea of some sort concerning him. What is it?' "'If you really want to know,' Hanage said, "'I believe that Rayson has kept something back. It is a very dangerous thing to do, and I believe that he realizes it. I believe that he has some secret knowledge of the affair which he has not disclosed, knowledge which he has kept out of his evidence altogether.' "'A guilty knowledge?' Mason whispered. "'Not necessarily,' Hanage answered. "'He may be shielding someone.' "'If you are right,' Mason said anxiously, "'it is a serious affair.' "'Very serious indeed,' Hanage assented. "'I believe that he is realizing it.' The colonel came back looking a little disturbed. "'Sorry, boys, but I must be off,' he announced. "'Rayson has just telephoned to ask me to go down and see him. I'm afraid he's queer. I've sent for a hansom.' "'Poor chap,' Mason murmured. "'Let us know if any of us can do anything.' The colonel nodded and took his departure. The others drifted up into the billiard-room. Hanage alone remained seated at the end of the table. He was playing idly with his wine-glass, but his eyes were fixed steadfastly, if a little absently, upon the colonel's empty place. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com